Um, today we're going to read from the word, Amos 9, 11 through 15. <clears throat> In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. testing. There we go. There we go. Good morning, everybody. Um, this is the, uh, the most beautiful passage in all of Amos. It's at the very end, and it is an expression on hope uh, after eight and a half chapters of a pretty despairing and, and uh, hard texts describing the judgment that God was going to levy against Israel and Judah and the nations surrounding them. And so it's a, it's, a, it's a great message of hope. And I'm wanting, I mean, last week we did a review, but I want, to start, I want to start this series out with a strong message of hope and what Christ is trying to strengthen our hope in. Um, Warren Buffett, in uh, two t episodes or two editions of uh, Time Magazine, there's, a, you know, the, the, there's so much negativity right now in the media and in the news and in the events around the world. And, and they uh, put out a, an edition of the magazine that was trying to just show why uh, in the midst of all of the challenges and the struggles, we should be optimistic. And, uh, and so the whole, the whole uh, edition is about um, all of these great things that are happening around the world to solve, to solve really uh, some real problems and significant problems. And, and um, Warren Buffett's got a, uh, a story in there, so it's just an anthology, a collection of a bunch of different stories from prominent people throughout a number of disciplines. And, and Warren Buffett's got a story in there about, um, the it's called The Genius of America. And it's about American capitalism. And, and shows, and I'm not going to describe the whole thing thoroughly, but he, he basically shows how um, since America's inception, uh, the standard of living, not only in America, but really a, around the world, has improved dramatically. And um, that, that it's going to continue to go that way for many generations. But at the conclusion of the story, he also acknowledges that, listen, that there's been a great growth in wealth, but there's been a disproportionate um, amount that has not been shared equally or... or there's a great number, millions of people, not only in the U.S., but around the world, obviously, that, that, does, that hasn't shared in the abundance uh, as much as is possible. And 
he brings up, <clears throat> excuse me, the challenge of creating wealth and economic prosperity while also addressing the needs of the poor and those who are needy. And so this, this problem is not new. In fact, it is the problem, Israel's lack of ability to address this problem is on the surface the reason why God brings judgment against them. The promises of God, and this is really the, the, the message today, the title is, um, I can't remember the title, Hoping in the Coming King of Shared Prosperity. The promises of God to Israel, since its inception, promises to, to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, was, was a promise for an abundance of material prosperity and security as a people. And that is God's desire for his people. And I want to show that today. I want to show that out of this passage in Amos. And I also want to just show it from all of Scripture um, briefly. Um, because if, if we're going to, if we're going to, if we as God's people are called to be concerned for the poor and to be concerned for the needy, we, under, we need to understand that that's within a context of an abundance. And we have to appreciate and pursue and delight in the abundance in order to adequately care for the needs of the poor and the needy. And I want to show that. I want to show that. Um, so last week, last week we introduced the prophets, and Israel and Judah, this is one of the, Amos is probably the first writing prophet, that is, his, his writings were assembled, um, one of the earliest prophets, and so um, we saw that God was bringing judgment, it starts out with these judgments against the nations that are around Israel, Moab, and uh, Philistia, and so all of these different nations. And then there's the judgments of the first part, chapter 2, then come against Israel, which was the northern tribes, because Israel, because of their political unrest and Solomon's idolatry, was divided. It was a divided country. So the north, 10 tribes was called Israel. The southern two tribes were called Judah. And so there's a, a huge judgment against Judah for its rejection of God's laws and their idolatry. And then, there are, and then there's a judgment against Israel for, for the four things that they had uh, committed against God that brought judgment upon them. And the four things, um, first of all, idolatry, leaving God and rejecting his law. Um, second, um, getting rich by abusing the poor. So third one was sexual immorality. And um, the fourth one was, was, this, was this false and insincere worship that also was oppressive to people. And so God is bringing this judgment, and there is a hope at the end of the book in order to keep the readers, okay, because this is not, a, this is not a, a, a document that was being read by the people in order to help them uh, get to a place where they could avoid the coming judgment. Okay, so Amos prophesied to Israel and to Judah and to the nations and said, I'm warning you. Judgment is coming if you do not repent of these things. 
So that was when Amos was personally prophesying. Okay? Two years later, the earthquake comes. And the earthquake was the means of God's judgment. And there's a connection between what Amos prophesied and warned Israel about and what the actual judgment was. And the Assyrians also had come and had taken Israel, the top ten tribes, captive. And so the judgment came. And so then later, this book gets assembled and put into Israel's scripture. So we have the law, the prophets, and the writings. And so you have a people that are reading this, not to save them from the judgment that's already come. It is to prepare Israel for the future. And to cause them to pursue God, to seek God. He says, seek me, repent and seek me. And, and, and the book is giving us a, 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 an understanding of what it means to pursue and to seek and put our hope in God in order to take hold of this life that he has promised. And so this, is, this, this passage that we read this morning is the, is, the, is the concluding passage of hope. And it describes, it describes a coming king, a coming king who's going to bring a security and material prosperity back to Israel. And so for us, for us, we, we read this, and we're way past the judgment. I mean, we're so far past the judgment that there's no way that we're, we're not sitting here worrying about God bringing an earthquake. Ah, there might be an earthquake, but we're not going to immediately connect it to God's judgment. All right? But it's deeper concerns. And what the, what the, what the book and what the prophets were writing for, I mean, the, the New Testament says these things were written for us. All right? These things were written for us. So we can read the book of Amos and see that God is not pleased with his people when they, enjoy, when they enjoy the abundance of their prosperity and their affluence and neglect the needs of the poor and the needy. That is, that is one of these central messages. And so how do we, how do we as Christians approach this subject? Okay, how do we approach? as Christians approach the reality of wealth, the reality of affluence, the reality of the fact that we all live in one of the most, if not the most, affluent culture. All right, we don't just have people that are affluent, we have a culture that is affluent, and that is a change. There are 27 countries, probably closer to 30 now, that have affluent cultures, not just affluent people, but affluent cultures, and the United States is one. And we are Christians living in the midst of the, probably the most powerful and, and, and um, significant of those affluent cultures. So we have to think and we have to act in such a way that uh, keeps us in the will and in the delight of God. And so what, what you see emerging and has emerged within Christianity in terms of what we understand to be contemporary evangelical Christianity, you have, you have two sides you have two sides. One side is this call to pursue, um, not necessarily like poverty, okay? I mean, it, it, 
the, the Catholics uh, would, in, the, the priests would have to take a vow of, of poverty. We don't have the pursuit of poverty as a goal, but there is a, a side that, that encourages and preaches and teaches a minimalism. Minimalism as the goal. So the new monasticism, uh, a lot of the writings of Ron Sider, who wrote the book, very influential book, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. And so a lot of these, a lot of these efforts um, are moving, want to move us as a people to pursue uh, as minimal of a lifestyle as possible so that we can share as much as we can with those who are in need, especially those around the world that aren't living in affluent cultures. He says, uh, I'm going to give a couple quotes here so you can get the sense. What an ironic tragedy that an affluent Christian, in quotes, minority in the world, continues to hoard its wealth while hundreds of millions of people hover on the edge of starvation. And so he says, we have all this wealth. It seems like we have the means to distribute it all over the world to help people, so we should be, and we Christians should be leading the charge. A number of assumptions in there. I'm not going to get into all that. We're going to kind of unfold these ideas as we go through the series. And then he says, persons, persons sin by participating in evil systems when they understand, at least to some degree, that the system displeases God, but fail to act responsibly to change things. And he would argue, and many argue, that capitalism is an evil system. And a lot of our means of, of production and wealth and distribution are evil systems. And if any of us participate in that system, we are sinning intentionally, and that displeases God. And there is no way, there is no way that we cannot participate in capitalism. All right? No way. All right? Now, and something to consider, Jesus participated in the evil systems that were around when he was alive. See, Jesus was a tradesman. It's often, we often think of Jesus as this poor, homeless guy, right? He was not a poor, homeless guy. In his season of ministry, he did not have a home. But up until 30 years old, he was a carpenter. And a carpenter was a skilled craftsperson at that time and probably enjoyed what we would consider a middle-class life, as did some of the disciples, the fishermen. Do you know Peter and, and his brother, Andrew, it's Peter's brother Andrew, I think it's Andrew, and Jay, they were fishermen, and they had servants, all right? So a lot of our perceptions of Jesus and his disciples, some of his disciples were even the tax collectors, which were the rich, and they were despised, but they were rich, and some of his disciples, not his immediate 12, but a lot of his disciples were fairly wealthy. And so we, anyway, there, there's just some assumptions about kind of an extreme, extreme measures that we should take as Christians in order to share what we have with those around the world. That's one side. The other side is the prosperity gospel that argues, <clears throat> excuse me, that argues that if you're following God, you're going to be wealthy. There was a great article in the September issue of Christianity Today um, by a, a man whose name is Costi Hinn. Benny Hinn's nephew. And if you don't know Benny Hinn, Benny Hinn is a, a very uh, prominent, charismatic, Pentecostal, prosperity gospel preacher. And I just want to read a couple paragraphs from that article. He's describing the lavish lifestyle that he as the nephew of Benny Hinn experienced. Growing up in the Hinn family empire was like belonging to some hybrid of the royal family and the mafia. 
Our lifestyle was lavish, our loyalty was enforced, and our version of the gospel was big business. Though Jesus Christ was still a part of our gospel, he was more of a magic genie than the king of kings. Rubbing him the right way by giving money and having enough faith would unlock your spiritual inheritance. God's goal was not his glory, but our gain. His grace was not to set us free from sin, but to make us rich. The abundant life he offered wasn't eternal. It was now. We lived the prosperity gospel. I get this. My father pastored a small church in Vancouver, British Columbia. During my teenage years, he would travel nearly twice a month with my uncle, Benny Hinn. Prosperity theology paid amazingly well. We lived in a 10,000-square-foot mansion guarded by a private gate, drove two Mercedes-Benz vehicles, vacationed in exotic destinations, and shopped at the most expensive stores. On top of that, we bought a $2 million Ocean View home in Dana Point, California, where another Benz joined the fleet. And we were abundantly blessed. And so he goes on to explain that his, his process of coming out of the prosperity gospel lifestyle. And so those are kind of the two ends of the spectrum. Complete minimalism and simplicity in order to give anything that we don't need away. And God has called us to be rich and to share in the abundant life uh, if we are faithful to him. So we need some serious biblical scholarship and thought on this issue. John Scheider wrote this book. He said it's, it's called The Good of Affluence. And he says, if the radical Christians and those who are sympathetic with their approach oversimplify the moral relationship in Scripture between affluence and evil, right? So what he's saying is that this side would say that, there, that affluence automatically equals a moral wrong, he says, then advocates of the prosperity gospel oversimplify the relationship between affluence and the moral good. And so the other side would say, hey, if you're rich, you're good. And, well, as we shall see, they both greatly oversimplify the teachings of Scripture and underestimate the role of culture in making wealth possible. And so we can't automatically just jump to the conclusion that affluence is evil. And we can't automatically jump to the conclusion that affluence is right. right? There, are, there are nuances in the teaching and in what God has called his people to where we, can't, we just can't create a black and white scenario around these things in either way. Remember when Jesus told the disciples, um, it, is, it is very difficult almost impossible. And I think he may be, well, he says it is, it, it, for a rich man to get into heaven is like a, a camel going through the eye of a needle. And the disciples, they said, well, how can anybody get into heaven then? That, that showed the mentality that they had in terms of those who prospered financially were those who were right with God. And so you can see these, these kinds of understandings have been present within the people of God for millennia. And so we need to, through the help of Amos and Joel and Habakkuk, um, we're in the, this is what the prophets are really emphasizing. How do we as God's people live in the, in the um, will of God 
um, and enjoy what God blesses us with while also meeting the needs of the poor and the needy that are around us. This is, this, this is one of the central messages of the prophets. And so what I want to start with today, <clears throat> I want to start with where the scriptures start. And I, and I want us as a church, because I, th- I think the scriptures want this, um, we must affirm the scriptural teaching that it is a good thing to delight in material prosperity. It is a good thing for us to delight in material prosperity. Okay? It's a good thing to delight in material prosperity. So what do we mean by that? Well, let's look at the passage. As the passage unfolds, let me get back to it here, the first couple of verses talk about the promise that God has been unfolding since, since humanity was on the face of the earth. There is going to be a child that comes, and he is going to be a king, and he is going to be a prophet, and he is going to establish the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel, under this king, will, will rule the rest of the nations for eternity in security and peace and prosperity for all of those nations. That's the promise of the message. Of the, that is the message of the Bible. We know and understand that promised child to be Jesus of Nazareth. He was indeed the Messiah. And so at first, it begins by establishing, hey, there is going to be, and this is outside of our conception, I know. <laughs> there is going to be a secure, stable, and just government. I, I know it's unbelievable. There is going to be a powerful, just, stable and secure government. That is the first thing this passage is teaching. And the question I want us to be asking as we, as we go through this passage is, 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 what is God appealing to? This is a hopeful message. What about us is he appealing to? It is good. It is a good thing for us as people to long for and to want a solid and stable and powerful and just government. It's a good thing to hope for. We need to keep in mind that that is not going to exist until Jesus returns. It's not going to exist until Jesus returns. But what he's telling us about what Jesus is going to do is a good thing. It's a good thing. The kingdom of God is going to be characterized by a powerful, stable, and just government. But then that, that government is going to bring with it some really good things. So he continues. Food will be abundant. Okay? It's not just going to meet the basic needs Look at it. The plowman will overtake the reaper. Okay, so if you haven't, if you don't know what those terms mean, if you've never been around a farm, here's what that means. When you are, when you're a farmer or a gardener, right, the plowman is the one digging up the ground and planting the seeds. The reaper is the one harvesting. Okay, so we had a little 12 by 12 garden this year, all right, and we were harvesting things right up until the freeze. 
All right, so here, but the, the image is this. You're going to be harvesting, and the harvest is going to be so abundant that you're going to be interrupting next season's plowman from starting. That's how abundant the harvest is going to be. Everyone will have more than enough to eat. There will, I mean, in the early promises that God gave to Israel, you're going to be throwing out the old stores because you're going to be bringing in the new. All right? Again, that is not minimalism. That is not just getting by. That is God appealing to what our hearts would like. So much food that we don't know what to do with it all. And then, he says, and then it says that, that the wine will be abundant. Now, wine is a kind of this broad symbol for just a general prosperity. And in the image that's similar to the plowman overtaking the reaper, we have the treader of grapes is going to overtake the planter. Is that right? The treader of grapes, him who sows the seeds. So the same thing. Same thing. The the harvest is so abundant that it gets in the way of those coming to plant the next seasons. And he says, the mountains and the hills are going to drip and flow with wine. All right? This is, what's, what's in, and we read these things all the time in Scripture, but I don't know if we make all of these connections. I, I certainly don't until I start to meditate and think on these things. The message of hope about Jesus coming is a message of what we would consider affluence. These are things that correspond to putting our trust in Jesus Christ. More food than we need, wealth and prosperity. He says, fortunes will be restored. Here's what the, de here's what the definition of fortunes is. Possessions, materials, and property that will make life easier and more secure. That's what, that's what he's saying. I am going to pour out material possessions so that your lives will be easier and more secure. Cities and homes will be rebuilt and you will live in them. We are fleshly beings. We want homes. We want roads, sidewalks. We want places where we can live and dwell secure, where all of our needs are met. And not just that. We are overwhelmingly provided abundantly for the things that make life easier. That's what we want. It is not a bad thing. And I, I, we as a church, and I'm not sensing like we slide to one of these extremes. We're certainly not prosperity preachers, and we're certainly not minimalists. Okay? But I know that there in the, in, in where there is a lack of thought or conviction around these things, it's easy for us to have these seasons where we kind of feel guilty for having and enjoying things and we should, we should give up more or uh, we, you know what I'm saying? 
We, we all should affirm what the scriptures affirm, and that is the delight in material prosperity, a delight in affluence, and a delight in abundance. Because God has always intended it. God has always, all of the promises to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they have, he has always, it has always been a description of a people sharing in the abundant, overwhelmingly abundant gifts of God. We need to acknowledge that this has been God's intention. We need to acknowledge that, that God created us as fleshly beings. And as fleshly beings, we experience the material world. And there are things that bring delight to our experiences as humans. It is good to acknowledge that. It is good to pursue that. Christ has always intended it. The serpent has always corrupted it. And the work of Jesus is to restore it. The work of Jesus, this is what Jesus is doing. He is going to create a world where abundance and material prosperity is the norm. For everyone. For everyone. Amen. Now, I mean, I don't have time to get into the stories. I plan to, but we don't have time. Uh, if you think about the Garden of Eden, all right, it wasn't minimalist. It was abundance. The promises to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all right, you're going to be so blessed that all of the nations will be blessed through you. Land, descendants, overwhelming prosperity. You're going to be throwing away the old food while you're bringing in the new. The vision in Exodus, I will take you into a land flowing with milk and honey. That, that was the promise they were hold on, holding on to. All right? Deuteronomy, same, Moses is repeating the same message. Look at Solomon and David, especially Solomon. Because when he says here, I'm going to rise it up and rebuild it as in the days of old. What are the days of old? Solomon. People were coming from around the world to view the abundant blessing and prosperity that God put upon Israel in the kingdom of Solomon. They could not believe it. It was so overwhelming. And that is the vision that God is wanting Israel to get into their minds. Now there's a challenge. We have the challenge, and we're going to spend the rest of the series on the challenge. How do we affirm that God wants us to delight in material prosperity? How do we affirm that? Um, how do we pursue that? And how do we ensure that, that God's purposes are at the heart and that we do not enter into the abuses and the godlessness and the idolatry of ancient Israel and a lot of the church? We need to recognize that all, all material prosperity is a gift from God and that it also comes... Because God is at work in the world in all these ways that we don't even begin to comprehend or see. Material prosperity is also a consequence of a lot of cultural, historical, political, and economic influences and forces that you have got nothing to do with. And we are all participants 
Um, but but and every single one of us in here that enjoy the material prosperity of America are enjoying it because it's America. <laughs> and, and if we were born at a different time or a different place, our circumstances would be much different. And so what you have is not yours. And that's really the first thing. What you have is not yours. What we have is, is a gift from God by his grace for putting us into a place, into a time, and a culture, and a culture that has allowed for material prosperity. Now, a lot of the material prosperity we experience is a consequence of people forming a government to the best of our ability of humans uh, to embody a lot of what the scriptures and enlightenment philosophers called us to. And that while material prosperity is God's ultimate vision for humanity, it is not promised. It is not promised to everyone and it is not a measure of our faithfulness to God now. There are, at times, all right, there are, t- and throughout all of history and God's people, there are people in it, in that God wants to be poor. Right? We can't assume God's will is for everyone to be rich. Okay? These are just some assumptions I'm throwing out there. But to have and aspire to that material prosperity... Not, I'm not talking about we're, we're going we're gonna to leave the series of the prophets all striving to be rich. It's not what I'm saying. What I, where I want us to be is acknowledging that, that it is God who has put within us a desire to experience material prosperity. And that these things are the types of things. We don't hope in these things. We hope in the king who will provide these things and it will be provided for everyone when he returns. But it is not something that we are to think negatively about if we happen to have material prosperity now. And ultimately what we want to see and what we, see, what we see in the Gospels, what we see in the book of Acts, what we see in the, in the New Testament, in the epistles, and all the narratives, in the book of Revelation, we know that some of the people of God will be what we consider affluent. It's just going to be the case. We're also going to see that most in the people of God will be like Jesus and the disciples, what we would call middle class. Jesus and the disciples were middle class. Jesus' three years of ministry is different. Okay? We're not, we can't look at that as a very unique period around Jesus as he was demonstrating that he was indeed the Son of God. And then some in the people of God will have, will have substantial need at times with the people of God meeting those needs. And then all of the people of God should be engaged in hosp- hospitality or the loving of strangers. All right? and, and the gospel is constantly working us towards this. Love strangers, be generous with those who have need, for you were once like them. To to Israel, you once lived in Egypt under slavery. Therefore, take the sojourner and the needy and the oppressed and love them as if they were your own. Love them as if they were your own. That is the, the call of God upon ancient Israel. And God calls us to the same thing now. And, and, and the, reason why, the reason why it is so important, and if this is the only thing I wanted you to come away with today, we need to delight 
in material prosperity. We need to delight in abundance. We, we need to delight in having material possessions. Okay? And here's why. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And he put those in economic terms. We have the gospel explained to us in, in judicial terms. We have the gospel explained to us in, in uh, biological terms. This is an economic explanation of the gospel. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Here's why it is important that we as the people of God delight. Okay, when I say delight, I'm are joyful in material prosperity. Okay, and I, I don't think, and I'm not talking about you need to be making six figures or more. All right? If you have a home that you enjoy and find restful, if you have a, enough food and clothing to take care of your needs, if you enjoy some things in this world that aren't required for you to, to survive, if you enjoy going to movies or driving a car, or reading books, or eating nice food, or drinking wine, all right? Whatever it may be, all right? You need to enjoy those things and be confident in God's desire for you to enjoy those things. If you feel guilty, if you feel guilty because of your material prosperity, let me tell you, because God is going to pull us, we're going to see here in the next few weeks, God is going to pull us to radical generosity and sacrifice and giving. You cannot do that out of guilt. It will not last. You see? If you give and are generous with what you have because you're just constantly feeling guilty, you will not give as much and it will not last as long. You have to delight in the material prosperity that you have in order to generously share with those who don't have because you want them to have the same delight in material prosperity that you do. You want to see the beauty of them enjoying the things that you do. That is the heart of giving. And we do it because that's what Jesus Christ has done in us. He fills us and abundantly provides for us because it is joyful for him to do so. And so we, full of the joy of experiencing God's blessings upon us, whether they are material or whether they are spiritual, out of the overflow of that joy and what we are experiencing, are we able to then generously give without stopping and without limit until we see Jesus. That is why we have to enjoy the blessings of God. It is the only way that we can keep giving and giving and giving and giving and giving. And the promises to the disciples, remember what Jesus said. He said, those who have given up homes and family and wealth 
for my name's sake and for my purposes, will not only enjoy those things a hundredfold in the kingdom of God, but will do so even now. And this book, this, this book that I'm reading called The Book of the, the Good of Affluence argues that when Jesus and the disciples, listen, Jesus and the disciples in their three years on her, in their three years in the, in the public ministry of Christ before he was killed, uh, you guys, they entered into a sphere of affluence. I mean, they had a whole team of women taking care of them and sharing abundantly from their provision. They, it, they entered into a place of abundance in, their, in that public ministry. They didn't earn it and have a lot themselves. But the community that God had abundantly blessed indeed shared it with them. And so that's the gospel. That's the gospel. The, this delighting in the material possessions that God gives us is important. It's critical. Because we acknowledge the will and the blessing of God, and in that joy, we share it with others. And then we pray. Lord God, thank you for the, is the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of the, the message of the word and, and the, 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 the way that affirms so much of what it means to be human. But God, we understand that we have the flesh and that the flesh is going to pull us towards the abuses and indulgences that we see here in Amos from the nation of Israel. And so, God, we pray that you would help us to indeed delight and, and find joy in what you provide in all ways, and that you, God, would continue to move us towards, towards generosity and hospitality and loving strangers as well. In Christ's name, amen.